Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 9. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Crosspoint, and welcome to week nine of our online services. Would you join me as I pray together for our time today? Father, I'm asking that you would use this time, God, to change our lives. That, Father, we would come under the teaching of the authority of Scripture. And that, God, your authority would carry its full weight in our hearts today. That, God, there is a work of comfort that you want to do in me and in Cross Point downtown. God, I pray that we would be surrendered towards that. That, Lord, our hearts would be exposed and your healing would be applied. And, God, this would take place for your glory among us and in us. And that, God, we know that you always work for our good and the good of your people. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our series in 2 Corinthians, and the passage that we just read together show us something powerful happened. There was a miracle that took place in Corinth. It wasn't a healing, a healing miracle. It wasn't a miracle where thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't like Jesus had fed 5,000 or it was uh, it, the, the rising of Lazarus from the dead. But it was still a miracle and it was still as great nonetheless. The church in Corinth had repented. As we follow along in this book, we know that there was problems with the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth, that the church was distancing themselves from the Apostle Paul. They were actually walking in the other direction, and Paul pleads with them to return to his message, to return to his teaching, to return to the work that God has called to him as an apostle that planted the church, and that the church in Corinth receives his message and they turned to Paul in repentance. They yielded to him. They surrendered to God's work through him. And this is a means of God's comfort coming upon God's people. It's an expression of God's comforting love. In fact, that's what we see in this passage is that 
God brings about comfort to His people through people. That we are one of God's primary means of growth and sanctification for His church. That God aims to bring about comfort to our church and our world by means of people who are surrendered and yielded to Him. And that's Paul. Paul is surrendered to Christ. Paul wants to see God at work in his church. God, Paul wants to see this church that had been walking away from him, away from Jesus, to turn towards Christ in grief. But a grief that leads to repentance, that leads to no regret. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about repentance and how it applies in the life and body of God's church and how God uses us as both a means to bring ab- uh, bringing about repentance in one another, but also uh, opening our lives, unfolding our hearts so that we ourselves can walk in repentance. Let me define repentance for us. Repentance is a demonstration of genuine remorse for something that you have acknowledged as wrong and are taking the appropriate actions that show a commitment to changed behavior. I'm going to read that for us one more time. Repentance is a demonstration of genuine remorse for something that you have acknowledged as wrong, and you are taking appropriate actions to show a commitment to changed behavior. That you see that what you have done has brought harm, and it grieves you. You mourn what has happened. And not only are you grieving or you mourn what has happened, but you want to see a new beginning. You want to see something change. So that change begins to deeply deeply root in your life to where you live in a different way. You show a commitment towards changed behavior. And you prove that changed behavior by living it out. That's what repentance is. And that's what Paul wanted to see in his church. He references what he was desiring to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul's goal, his long-term goal in writing the church wasn't their pain. It was that they would know his abundant love, that they would experience his abundant love. This was comforting love. But this comforting love isn't the currency that we think it is today. It's not given in the same way we want, but it's Paul being used as God's instrument of comfort for a church that needs to walk in repentance. We say two things out of the Apostle Paul's life that God uses to bring transformation in the church of Corinth. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, but Paul is surrendered to what God wants for him. And so we see Paul's Uh, Number one, godly leadership. And number two, we see his godly love. Let's look at his godly leadership. Sam Storms applies Paul's leadership to the leadership of many pastors and ministry leaders in our day. He says, In a day when self-appointed and self-serving pastors and so-called leaders fleece their flocks and burden them with the responsibility of providing for a lavish and opulent lifestyle, Paul joyfully embraced whatever hardship might come his way if only it yielded a rich spiritual harvest in the lives of those entrusted to his care. You know, Paul could care less about his own luxuries. 
And Paul didn't seek to use the church. He loved the church. In fact, 2 Peter talks about the qualifications of an elder, and the qualifications of an elder means that they don't seek their own gain, but they pursue love, not under compulsion, but willingly, seeking the well-being of those whom they care for. Paul was easily described, or is easily described as a servant. He was a foot washer to the church in Corinth. This is why Paul could lead in that way, because He didn't take his placement among them personally, but he knew that his leadership was an apostleship by the will of God, that God had given him the authority to minister as his apostle. We see how this leadership is expressed by Paul, and the first thing we see is his leadership is costly. You'll see it in verse 2 here. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. You know, if Paul has to defend himself in his leadership and say, I've uh, corrupted no one, I've taken advantage of no one, you know those those accusations have come up from those whom he's writing to. And that he's put his own reputation on the line and his leadership is costly. Paul takes it a step further in saying that his own reputation isn't just on the line, but his life is on the line. You know, Paul laid down his life for the churches, that the church of Corinth was no exception, that this church gone wild, this church that had lived a self-indulgent life, much like the rest of the city of Corinth, was a church that Paul was so gladly and willingly die for. He says, not only have I lived among you and lived with you, but I'm willing to die with you and for you. This is the heartbeat of Paul's costly leadership to his church. And we're all here as beneficiaries of it today because that costly leadership that Paul paid a price for is one that we are reaping rewards from right now through his words in the scriptures. Paul also demonstrated a bold leadership. Paul was courageous with his church. He was ferociously in love with those he led, and it led to a boldness. Much like the boldness that a father has for his children, Paul had that boldness for his spiritual children in the church of Corinth. Those who came to faith by his ministry were those that he pursued after with a bold love. He says, I take great pride in you. Paul's pride in the church of Corinth was much like the pride of a, of a father with his son or with a parent and their children. We take pride in our children, not because of anything that they do, but because they're ours, that they're our God-given responsibility. And we see something in ourselves and something of God in them. And it brings us an overwhelming and overflowing joy. And it causes us to train them up in the way they should go. We parent them with boldness. That's our call as parents. Not to parent them according to the way they wanted to be parented. Because you know that'll cause them to live reckless lives of, of uh, selfishness and pride. But, but man, if we could raise our kids in godly and dignified ways that they would live lives for God's glory. That's much of the heartbeat that Paul had for the church, that they would 
live in that way, and Paul was very bold about it. We also see that Paul demonstrated overflowing joy in his leadership. He had a joy in his church that didn't ride on the lows or the highs, but it was transcendent above the circumstances. If the church of Corinth rejected him, Paul still had an overwhelming joy for them because Paul's joy for them and hope for them was in the work that the Holy Spirit was doing in them. It was not dependent upon Paul. And so Paul says he has overwhelming joy, overflowing joy. He says, I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy for even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting, with, fighting without and fear within. It's kind of hard to imagine Paul saying that he experiences fear within when we just talked about his boldness and his courageousness. But we also know of his humanity. He says later on that he has an anxiety for all the churches. We know that when Paul had sent the tear-filled letter to the church of Corinth that he had anxiety surrounding that. How would they receive his message? But yet there was still a joy. And the joy is that he knew that nothing could separate those whom God loves from God himself. And that God continues to pursue those he loves with a steadfast faithfulness. The same way that God is pursuing after you and I is the same way that God pursued after the church in Corinth. It's a never stopping, a never giving up love. And that brought Paul joy. Because he knew that even if he gave up on them, which he was not going to do, but even if he did, God would not. He wouldn't stop loving them. And that brought him joy at every turn, even while he battled this internal angst and struggle. Crawford Loritz talks about four jewels of leadership that as we mature as Christians and we mature as leaders that develop our character and our life. He says the four jewels God uses to mature a Christian leader are suffering, personal struggles, failure, and success through hardship. You know, I know we're not looking at each other right now, but if I had to ask who would raise their hands and say you've experienced one of those, you'd probably be shy and only a couple of you would raise your hands. But come on, be honest. Raise your hand. How many of you have matured because of failure? How many of you have matured because of suffering and personal struggles? How many of you have matured through success in hardship? Nobody signs up for those things, but this is God's forging iron upon us. These are the things that bring an internal joy, not an external joy, not just a happy-go-lucky, pie-in-the-sky faking it type of joy. This is a joy that's blood-bought. And it's bought and wrought through hardship. This is a joy that Paul had for his church. This is the overflowing joy that Paul demonstrated as a leader. We also see that in order to bring about God's comforting love, he brings about a godly love through Paul. You know, Paul didn't love people with a popular currency of his day. There's a popular currency of our day for love, and the pop popular currency of our day for love is, hey, you do you, I'll do me and you do you, 
and let's just try to support each other in the way I think I should live and me support you in the way you think you should live. Paul says if you don't, if the way you feel you're called to live doesn't line up with the way the Bible has called you to live, then I'm going to confront that. And that's what Paul does. He demonstrates a godly love. And it's a love that actually brings comfort. You know, it's, it's hard to reconcile uh, a, a comforting love with a love that's given in pain. But that's exactly what happens through Paul. If you read it in verses uh, 6 through 9, we see it here. He says, let me find the verse here, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. So, when Paul talks about, uh, uh, or when we see this love that brought about comfort, we know that Paul had wrote this letter. We don't have the letter, but it was known as Paul's tear-filled letter or Paul's severe letter to the church of Corinth. It's kind of like writing an email and you've been up all night and you're writing this email and you know this email is filled with truth and you know it's filled with love and you know that these words need to be heard by the person you're sending it to, but there's a lot of anxiousness inside of you that says, will they receive it? Will they hear what I'm trying to say? But you push sinned anyway and after you push sinned, you begin to regret it. And Paul, as he gives Titus the letter, and Titus is off to greet the church of Corinth with this tear-filled and severe letter, Paul wonders, how will they receive it? Will they receive me or will they reject me? Will they receive my message of hope in Jesus Christ or will they become apostate? Will they fall away from him? But yet he waits for Titus. You know this from the travelogue of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that Paul was in Troas, and as he was in Troas, there was an opportunity had to, to preach the gospel, and people were coming to faith, but yet there is this inner turmoil, this angst that Paul experienced because he knew he wrote the severe letter to the church of Corinth, and, and he wondered if they'd receive it, and so he couldn't continue with what God called him to do, and so he went to the next rendezvous point in Macedonia to meet with Titus, and he waited for Titus there, and I can imagine as Titus is coming towards him, there's a smile on Titus's face and seeing the apostle, and he's thinking, did they hear it? Did they receive it? And Paul's, uh, Titus's countenance is one of joy and comfort, and as they embrace and they greet each other, he says, they heard you, brother. They heard you, brother. They heard your message calling them to yourself. But more than that, calling them to Jesus. And they long to see you. They're filled with joy to see you again. And how that brought comfort to Paul when he was downcast. Knowing of their longing, their mourning, their zeal for him. And Paul says, so I rejoiced all the more. It was a love that brought confrontation. The love that Paul brought to the Corinth wasn't just clouds and fluffiness and happiness. It was a hard message. Paul wasn't afraid of confronting people with hard messages. Now, it wasn't easy for Paul to do this. In fact, one of the characteristics that we look for in elders at Cross Point downtown or 
men who are willing to stand in the gap to confront those in hard, difficult situations and times, willing to rebuke, but not men who are eager to rebuke. Paul was not not eager to rebuke. Paul didn't take it lightly, but he was wanting and willing to confront because he knew that ultimately his confrontation would lead to a greater comfort. He says in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Paul knew his letter was costly. He knew that their relationship was at stake, but he also knew if they heard his letter, then it would be like a wound that easily heals because they're in the right place to have surgery done. You know, Paul, as he dealt with the things that needed to be dealt with in the church of Corinth, he was like a surgeon. It's not like he took an axe to do surgery, but he was minimally invasive, only dealing with that which needed to be dealt with. And he did this with great tenderness and care. And as a result of that, there was pain. The church grieved, but they grieved only for a while because they received his message of confrontation and it changed them. You know, I admire Paul's ministry and his love because he didn't have a poll taken to figure out how to tailor his message towards what would make him popular. No, Paul said in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. While Paul was beholden to the people he served, ultimately, he was beholden to serving Christ. He says he was the slave of Jesus Christ. That his life he considered in chains to him. That he was to go nowhere else. And so he sought Christ's will above his will. And he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And Paul was willing to see that confrontation happen so ultimately the church would be comforted by finding a comfort in Jesus. Then we see a love that is willing to bring about repentance. In verse 9, he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul had an end in mind when he wrote that severe letter. And the end in mind that was there when he wrote was that they would repent and that they would change and that we'd grow in holiness as Christians and that they would be a light for the gospel, the refuge in a storm, that they would tell Corinth, this sinful, self-indulgent city, of the mercy that they had in their Savior. And for Paul, this was gain. He says, you suffered no loss through my words. And he says, I knew that that grief was good because it led you to repentance. Next week, we're going to talk about the difference between good grief and ungodly grief or worldly grief. That there is a good grief that leads to repentance that leaves no regrets. But there is a worldly grief that leads to death. And we're going to talk about the differences between the two, how to understand them in our own lives and how to walk and live 
uh, in repentance and know that that's the purpose of Jesus' death. And this is what Paul saw taking place among the church members. The core, the core question uh, or the core of repentance is faith. It asks the question, will you turn from false hopes, from false savior, from lies that you've been trusting? And will you turn to Jesus and trust in Him? Every time we trust in a false Savior, every time we trust in a false hope, every time we trust in a lie, we're walking away from Christ. In order to walk towards Christ, we've got to leave those things behind so we can, by faith, embrace Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson says that sinners must always come empty-handed. By nature, my hands are full. They're full of sin. They're full of self. They're full of my own good deeds. However, hands that are full cannot hold on to Christ in faith. Instead, they take hold of Him. They are em- as they take hold of Him, they are empty. That which has prevented us from trusting Him falls inevitably to the ground. The old way of life cannot be retained in hands that are taking hold of the Savior. Paul demonstrates this or has this principle in mind when he says 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. That when we come to Christ, we come with empty hands because in order to, by faith, receive Christ, we've got to let everything else go so that we can hold on to Him as everything that we need. That's what repentance is. It's letting the things of old go so that our hands can have room for Jesus and Jesus alone. That's His call. And that's what He's calling us towards. And maybe God will use you like a godly leader to confront someone else and to love them with a godly love that's willing to do it. Or maybe God is using someone in your life right now to draw attention to the things that you are holding on to that are, are, are strengthening an ungodly faith in you. And He's saying to let those things be gone so that you're putting faith in Jesus and Him alone. And that brings about a blood-bought repentance. That's the purpose of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So that we, like it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we would be broken. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That when we come before Christ, we come as paupers, needing Him to be our wealth in our riches. Here's the thing that I want us to know about repentance, though. Repentance in our life, it's not a one and done deal. Yes, it is the gateway. It is the entryway. Seeing our brokenness and trusting in our Savior is the entryway, but it it is the pathway in which we walk for holiness on a day-to-day basis. I saw this this past week as My wife shared with me a video of her faith hero, Ron Luce. My wife was a part of Teen Mania ministry. She was an intern for a year, and she watched in the early days of Teen Mania God do some really miraculous things in this ministry and through uh, the founder of this ministry and president, Ron Luce. And he posted a video the other day, and 
Uh, in it, he describes some of the success that he had. If you know the success of Teen Mania, uh, you know that it was a, a very vibrant youth ministry uh, uh, that was uh, built upon conferences that would draw, draw thousands of youth uh, to these venues that caused them to worship God. And many came to faith in Christ. Thousands came to faith in Christ. And there were hundreds and hundreds of ministry leaders that were raised up through their internship. And God used as, and has used them as almost an army today. But Ron Luce is now, Ting Mania doesn't exist anymore. And as he's getting into his later years of life, he's evaluating his ministry. And he's wondering how God has called him into repentance. And he makes this video with a heartfelt apology. He says, I'm afraid that something happens when success uh, takes place in our lives that at most time when we're in the middle of it, we can't see it. There's a sense of entitlement. I deserve this or that. And in the middle of it, I know that I've treated people in that success in an unkind, in an abrupt way. Even sometimes I was ruthless in the way I treated you. He says, and I'm very sorry for that. I can't imagine how it must have made you feel. I don't know what to do, but to offer my earnest and heartfelt apology. I'm genuinely sorry to hear how I have hurt you, how I have harmed some of you. And I want to know your story. I want to know the hope, and, and, and I hope that I can make things right with you. And then he invited them to reach out to them in a very specific way so he could hear from them one-on-one, -on -one, no, no matter how hard it was. One of the things I was glad to see in that video was a man who I admire. I look up to a whole lot. I know my wife does. But to watch him demonstrate this heartfelt grief and sorrow. And with that heartfelt grief, there was a longing to make things right in those whom he harmed. And there was an invitation to hear the pain that he caused so that he could, in his earnestness, see that it didn't happen again. That's an example of repentance. And it's one that I pray God allows us to experience all the days of our life. Because on this side of eternity, we're never going to be perfect and we're always going to have a sin struggle. And with that in mind, we're always going to need God to show us when we're not walking in His ways. Repentance is seeing the holiness of God. And it's being grieved by the ways that we have looked at His holiness and His glory and we've paid lip service towards it. Repentance is seeing that we've not lived for God's glory, but we've lived for our own glory, and it's mourning that. Repentance is like what we see from Isaiah when he sees the holiness of God, and Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Repentance is also wanting to see a new way forward. 
and is looking to Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who provides for us the way to walk in newness because He is our perfection. He's the one that gives us the way to repentance. And so repentance is looking to Jesus and trusting Him day by day and with those empty hands of faith, receiving Him. The way of repentance is the way of Christ. I want to close with this verse from Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Paul's writing to the church of Rome. And he says this, Do you presume upon the riches of, of God's... Uh, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? So the church in Rome was a church that God loved and showed His grace in a very lavish way too. But it was an also a church that struggled with idolatry. And what Paul is saying to the church in Rome is that God has been kind to you by showing you your sin. Rather than presuming upon God's kindness as a way to wallow in your sin or stay in your sin or live in the way of the old way, not as a new creation, but rather than living in that way, why don't you see God's kindness as something that changes you? You know, this is the way we're called to live as a church. That God's kindness does something to us. That like what happened in Corinth, it happens to us. That we who have been walking one way will turn around the other way in order to experience the grace of God. Church, I believe that we are not Christians if we don't see that God and His love changes us from the inside out. And I have good proof from that from 2 Corinthians 5.17. For anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone and behold, the new has come. This is the will of God. That His blood-bought sacrifice is a kindness that you would not presume on, but that you would receive with the empty hands of faith. And that you would let the old ways fall to the ground and embrace the new ways that Jesus has made for you through His cross and His resurrection. That we would be a church that's marked by repentance. That we would be notorious in our repentance. Because we know that our Savior is notorious in His grace. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank you so much for the grace that you lavish on us. Lord, I pray that we don't presume upon your kindness, but Lord, we receive it and we know that God, there's a work that you're bringing about to change us. And that wholeheartedly, Lord, we would yield to you like the church of Corinth did. And that God, we would receive not just Paul's godly leadership and godly love, but God, we would receive your leadership and your love, because it's a good gift. And Holy Spirit, would you help us live out this message by causing us to walk in repentance, grieving our sin, and clinging to our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.